the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, the Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nalla. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. Our recent shows in Magic Markets Premium have included platforms like TripAdvisor, technology businesses like Salesforce, luxury consumer brands like LVMH and Aston Martin, and even an old-school industrials group like 3M. For just 99 Rand a month and no minimum commitment, there is no better way to learn about international stocks and how to research them. Visit magic-markets.com to sign up today. Welcome to episode 136 of Magic Markets. Hani out here with your host, The Finance Ghost, and of course, Mohamed Nalla. We've been doing this together for a long time now, Mo. And uh, this week, we are going to be talking about some retail stocks. Always very topical, and I think the reason it's so topical is because people know what these companies actually do. It's not some weird, esoteric ticker, and you have to go and figure out what the company does. If I'd say Walmart to you, or ShopRite for that matter, it means something, and you understand these businesses. Yeah, Ghost, always a pleasure doing this with you. And you're right. I mean, retail stocks, something that is intuitive. A lot of people know, you know where you go and do your shopping. And I think part of why we want to cover that this week is that we've had some results out of retailers in South Africa. We're still waiting for some results out of US-based retailers. We're in the middle of the Q2 earnings season as we're speaking right now. And what's interesting for us is that there are some common themes and trends that you're starting to pick up but there are also some interesting divergences and differences. So we wanna unpack what's common, what's different, and what does the retail stock reality look like? I think what's been really stark in the South African retail sector recently is, you know, sometimes we talk about this concept of uh, the rising tide lifts all boats. You know, it's one of those sayings that gets used in markets. And what it basically means is, under the right conditions, everything does well. Some things just do slightly better than others, and you can pretty much throw darts and make money, and life is great. However, in tough times, those boats are not all necessarily sinking to the same level. Some of them are still rising. Some of them are, you know, bottom of the ocean stuff. So what we've seen in local retail, and by local here, I mean South African, is, you know, between load shedding and inflation and pricing pressure and different product categories and different levels of resonance with consumers and different price points on the LSM curve and the whole shebang, we have seen an incredible divergence even within grocery retail, for example. So I often write about how grocery retail is nowhere near as defensive as people think it is. Yes, everyone needs to eat. That does not make your local grocery store a defensive business. You can buy that food anywhere. Let's start there. You have loads of potential substitutes. You can just eat bread tonight. You don't have to have a steak. You know, There's just so many reasons why it's nowhere near as defensive as you think. And the cost base of a grocery retailer is set up on the assumption that consumers will buy a whole range of products not just the lowest margin stuff. Otherwise, the business fails. So that lack of defensiveness has come through. We've seen huge divergence between ShopRite at the top end, pick and pay pretty much at the bottom, Spa dealing with all of their own issues, ranging from new management teams through to, and that's not the issue, the old management team was clearly the issue, through to you know businesses overseas that are causing a lot of havoc, and then Woolworths, which has very much just been coming back into it, you know, under new management, very focused on fashion, beauty, home. So huge divergence. And that's just within grocery retail, although Woolworths is not strictly grocery retail. So when you look at stuff like cash build, and when you look further up the value chain at businesses like AVI, it really does get incredibly interesting. Yeah, I almost want to jump into that ghost from a perspective of demarcating the consumer staples business versus the consumer discretionaries business. Now, 
I know, for example, in the US, you just have so many more stocks to play around with that your sectoral definitions tend to be a lot clearer than you would maybe pick up in South Africa. And in fact, I would think in the retail sector in South Africa, you get a, a reasonable degree of differentiation. And whilst that might not be between kind of consumer staples versus discretionary, in South Africa, your differentiation, interestingly enough, is almost based on which segment of the LSM of the market from an income perspective shops at which retailers. And I mean, some of those perspectives are definitely interesting. I wanna almost zoom from that to the US and touch on a couple of points there. I mean, we've covered stocks like Walmart and Costco on Magic Markets Premium. And some interesting models there, for example, where you know, Costco, very much a memberships-based model. Walmart has that as well, for example, with Sam's Club. Uh, but that's more orientated, I guess, towards business clientele. But where I'm going with this is that what's been interesting over the last while from a macro perspective in the US markets was the fact that consumer cyclical stocks have actually done reasonably better over the course of the last quarter or two. Consumer staples and defensive stocks, and here you would look at retailers, but you'd also look at the likes of utilities companies. You'd also look at the likes of you know, any defensive stocks like the healthcare sector. Those defensive sectors have actually underperformed over the last quarter or two. So that divergence between cyclical stocks or consumer cyclical stocks that have actually done reasonably well over the last two quarters versus consumer staples that have actually done you know, not so well over the last two quarters is interesting for me. And I think we've touched on that before because like I say, the South African economic and business cycle and market cycle by extension seems to be slightly out of kilter with where the US has gone. Now, let's take all of that and go back down to specific companies. Some interesting things that have actually come out over the course of the last while. Let's look at some of those stocks on a stock-specific basis. Let's look at the year-to-date, for example. Costco, with its strong underpin, with its subscriber-based or member-based model, that stock's up 23% on a year-to-date. And there was a time when it was actually underperforming the likes of Walmart, but for the year-to-date, Walmart significantly underperforming Costco, coming through at positive 12%. There's some divergence there, but both still at least on the right side of the gains versus losses divide. Then if we look at a Canadian retailer, for example, Loblaws Group. Now, if you think of this, think of a pick and pay, for example, very similar kind of flavor, that stock's down around 3% on a year-to-date basis. And then um, I've saved the best for last. You've got Target, which has been the target, for example, of the likes of Walmart. Target down 11% on a year-to-date basis. So you're seeing the same divergences emerge in the US market as you're seeing in the South African market. And that's for a variety of reasons, but not the least of all the fact that some of the businesses that have done well have actually embedded, I wouldn't say defensive aspects in terms of the types of clients they're targeting, but just in terms of how they go about doing that business. Also, these US listed companies have global exposure, right? Whereas the South African retailers generally speaking are local although not always some of them have got interests in markets like the uk or in australia so you do have to go and look closely but generally speaking they are south african and i must say south african businesses have had a bit of a mixed track record when it comes to offshore acquisitions most of them have actually done pretty horribly to be honest woolworths only just got out of david jones this year that was the poster child for for how not to do it 
I think some of these global companies, obviously very acquisitive as well, and perhaps also a bit of a mixed track record. And definitely a mixed track record. I mean, there's, there's an interesting tie between, you know, Walmart and MassMart in South Africa, something I know you've been very vocal about that you've written about as well. But interestingly enough, for me, the story, very recent story, I might add, is the fact that Walmart is currently looking at buying out the rest of Tiger Global stake in an Indian retailer known as Flipkart. Now, they're going to be paying around 1.4 billion for that additional stake. And this implies a valuation on Flipkart of around 35 billion US dollars. And this compares to 38 billion in 2021 when they first came to market. So again, you can see global retail, that valuations dropped over the last two years. But the big players saying, guess what? For growth, we're doubling down on some emerging markets. Flipkart playing in India. India is an exciting market. It's got a massive, massive consumer base. And the larger players basically saying, how can we get a bigger piece of that pie? I think with Walmart definitely doubling down, or tripling down, whatever you want to call it there, to try and get that catalyst from their emerging markets portfolio to come through. Problem for South Africa, of course, we come with all of the emerging market risks and almost none of the growth. It's uh, very concerning. So just talking about growth, you know, Liberty two degrees, that's now being taken out by Liberty. I don't know if you saw that, Mo. A bit of a win there for Liberty and a loss for retail investors. They invested, this being, you know, people who supported the IPO, would have invested at the height of the property boom in the JSC. It's actually, it's such a brilliant example of the stuff we always warn about when it comes to IPOs and hype. Property was all the rage in that period and Liberty two degrees came to market and the share price has basically halved roughly since then. And now Liberty is taking all of those shelters out anyway. So it's just a, it's phenomenal uh, cycle trading of a retail investor base who just gullibly, you know, went in and bought everything. But within the Liberty two degrees numbers, what I found really interesting and I wanted to highlight here was the difference in trading density at different malls. And that shows you how premium retail is still doing well, at least in South Africa, and a lot of other retail is not. So to give you an idea, Santon City so um, most people listening to this will be South African, but in case you're not, Sanson City is probably the premium mall effectively in Johannesburg, certainly in South Africa. That's 78,800 rand per square meter trading density. Now Eastgate, Mo, that'll bring back some memories for you, surely. That is at just over 39,000 rand per square meter. So it's half, it's actually half the trading density per square meter at Eastgate, which is a typical regional mall, still a major mall, but not in a rich area like Sanson City. And the fastest growing mall in the portfolio in terms of turnover was Melrose Arch, up 10.9% for the interim period. Santon City was up 10.2%. So South Africa as an emerging market, I suppose typical of emerging markets in that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, you know, the old story. And it comes through in numbers like this. You can see how the sort of high trading density malls are doing really well. And a lot of the other malls just are not. I mean, those are fascinating insights, right? I, I mean, Eastgate, yes, to a degree. I'm more of a West Rand boy. You know, I kind of grew up on the other, other, other side of town. So Eastgate might be on the wrong side of the tracks. So I've always been slightly scared of Yes, and I'm, I'm on the wrong sense. side of the wrong side of the tracks there. I mean, that trading density point is remarkable. I was, I was going to say, just from a macro perspective, it's not surprising. You know, it's not surprising because South Africa has probably the highest Gini coefficient in the world. That's the measure that measures inequality and the gap between the haves and the have-nots just gets so much bigger. And I guess that divergence is interesting when you look at the, the smaller, the regional malls. You know, in, in my view, I had a perception that there was more consolidation in the industry, but I think you've highlighted to me that it's actually more a story of the pace of development has actually fallen completely off. 
So you have to juxtapose that along with your trading density point, which I think is so important. And now again, I'm gonna use that and zoom out a little bit, because like you say, South Africa is an emerging market, but also comes with some of these idiosyncratic risks that come through. Compare that to developed markets, where a lot of the emphasis has been on how do they optimize on e-commerce? How does e-commerce, uh, you know, how does e-commerce from a retailer perspective now, not so much from a real estate perspective, but from a retailer perspective, how do they get their fulfillment or how do they get their operations on e-commerce a lot more efficient? Uh, and this then brings in the likes of an Amazon, for example, that has been building out its logistics business. Uh, it also has a bearing on the real estate market because then that kind of predisposes you towards warehousing still, you know, which is industrials versus commercial properties or retail properties. So those are all of the dynamics from that perspective. One thing I do want to touch on here is that we're still waiting for results from the likes of Costco. I think that's coming out in about another two months time. They released about a month ago. Uh, you've got Walmart around the corner in about two weeks time. But a trend that we've seen over the last two quarters or so has been the rise of shrinkage. Now I'm going to call a spade a spade. That means theft. So when you see those videos on your social media feed of people walking in and stealing stuff off shelves, there is some merit to that in that you're starting to see that come through in terms of the numbers of some of these large retailers. Now, why do I raise that point? Is that the developed markets were maybe not familiar with heightened inequality, social pressures. Those have started to come through. They came through post the pandemic. They've started to come through with regards to an aggressive interest rate hiking cycle that's really starting to erode, certainly at the lower end of the margin, consumers' pockets. I think the mid end of the market, the upper end of the market, that always stays resilient. But keep that in the back of your mind because shrinkage has become a much more material trend, certainly when it comes to US retailers specifically. Yeah, I mean, we've been stealing stuff in South Africa for years now. This is nothing new at all. And Mo, we've covered Prologis in uh, Magic Markets Premium, which is the warehouses business. And one of the big trends that came through there was, you know, just the shift from retail, well, fulfillment in retail stores into warehouses and what that means for the level of development in retail malls versus, for example, warehouses. Another thing that I'll touch on, which you might find interesting, is, is poor old cash build. Unfortunately for Cashbill, they sit right at the intersection of all of the stuff that is wrong with South Africa. So the big economic pressures, the way we feel about, you know, investing long term in bricks and mortar here, high interest rates, pressure on consumer spending. A lot of people where they are actually spending on their homes, doing solar projects rather than building on another room. The heady days of the pandemic where we all stayed home and, and were renovating homes, those are long gone. Interest rates were low. I mean, I've got to tell you, I have two very good data points of houses for sale in Cape Town. And this is not nonsense peddled by an estate agent. This is people I know and know very well. And in both cases, they are not getting offers. And that's in Cape Town. So, you know, that's probably the pinnacle of South African real estate. Sorry to burst your bubble, Mo. I told you to sell your flat in Joburg many moons ago. Uh, and the point being, you know, cash build then sits with that issue as well and revenue again down in the latest quarter. There's just not many silver linings in these numbers. Cash build is just down, 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 down almost all the time. And that is very much a function of not just South African consumer spending and our ability to spend, but also our willingness to spend. And as interest rates go up, it just gets worse. You know, you can put your money in the bank, you can earn yourself 8% or 9%, it becomes even harder to justify taking the risk on your property, doing the renovation. And this is the stuff that drives company performance. And it almost doesn't matter what the cash build management team does. It actually almost makes no difference. There is nothing they can do to turn the tide 
of what is going on with South African consumers. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty bearish stuff, Ghost. I mean, I, I look at a lot of the stuff from a macro perspective, and I want to touch on, on a couple of things, because some of those trends, some of those idiosyncratic risks in South Africa, yes, they're there. And ironically, sometimes where you think they present opportunities, those haven't even materialized in terms of the stocks that operate in that space. And a, a great example, I think, would be, I think it was Ellie's that came out with, you know, just scrappy numbers. Uh, and they should be a big beneficiary of this build out in terms of households and inverters and, you know, backup generation. I know they bought a business. You know what your problem is there, Mo? Your problem there is they make a lot of their money from satellite installations for DSTV. That is your... So if DSTV is a dinosaur of a business, you know, the satellites around DSTV, <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know what the correct, you know, sit in the ice age, you know, is probably where we're talking here. So, so then I should actually view them buying Bundu, for example. That's, that's a small operator. I, I should view that optimistically because it's, it's them trying to pivot the business. But I think, you know, if I take that and I look at the amount that some of the big listed retailers, circling all the way back to how we started this discussion, the amount they've spent on diesel just for backup generation has been monumental. And that ironically serves as a catalyst for them to build out risk mitigation technology, renewables and so forth. But another point I wanna just touch on before we lose sight of that is where the global retailers have kind of focused on e-commerce in South Africa, you know, I have a couple of questions here because the size of the market is comparatively a lot smaller. And I think again goes, if memory serves, we had take a lot not so long ago coming out and again, scrappy set of numbers. So you know, what doesn't seem to work in South Africa? Because you've got, like say these extremes, you've got the retail trading densities, very disparate across the various retail sectors. What's wrong with e-commerce? Because surely that should be an avenue that theoretically should make money. I see Amazon's coming, so there must be a market. There must be the ability to make some money What's not working in the current environment? I mean, to be fair, Amazon doesn't really make money in the e-commerce business either, right? And they do it at scale. I think it's a lot of things. It's obviously distribution costs, delivery costs, you know, one missed delivery and so many, you know, a lot of that margin goes. Uh, to be honest, I think Take-A-Lot has also just been fat and happy. They've really not had to face much competition. I don't know if you saw the news, actually. They're being forced now to split their operations into the marketplace and the sort of, you know, first party selling, you know, for want of a better description. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal for them. They, they already, you know, I joked on Twitter and I said, well, now they can make losses in two different places rather than in one, which is quite exciting. But basically they've been built with Nuspass's balance sheet and they really were a big part, I think, of MassMart's uh, downfall to such a large extent, really. And now they're going to face it with Amazon. They're going to face an even bigger, meaner balance sheet. We'll probably cry foul along the way. But the problem, I think, is just pure play online. You know, the market here is just too much in its infancy. I mean, you look at numbers like Woolworths, for example, and the level of online penetration as a percentage of total sales. And we are absolutely nowhere in comparison to Australia, for example. You know, in Australia, in Country Road, online sales contributed around 27% to total sales. To give you an idea, in Woolies Food, 3.8% of sales were online. That's it. So it's completely, completely different. The market for online is smaller. What works well here is omni-channel, which I think is a global is a global reality. I mean, we covered Mercado Libre in uh, Magic Markets Premium, and the reason that works is because they have a coherent, sensible ecosystem. It's not just Take a Lot; they do so much more than that. And you almost feel like Take a Lot had the chance to almost use Mercado Libre as its template company, take the NASPAS balance sheet, and go and build it. And instead, what they did was they kind of limped along, 
as a pure play online retailer and now they're going to have to deal with Amazon and uh, they've yet to make a profit. If they couldn't make a profit in the pandemic without Amazon, with people stuck at home and buying stuff online, what are the conditions under which Take a Lot actually makes a profit? I mean, I think those are massive questions. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that's all we have time for this week. But I think we've done a reasonably good job of trying to paint what that retail stock reality looks like, both in South Africa as well as globally, what some of the common themes are, what some of the divergences are, uh, and I guess some interesting anecdotal spillover data points there in terms of real estate and logistics and e-commerce. So let us know what you think of the show. We're trying to stick to our 20-minute shorter format on this. Hit us up on social media. It's at Magic Markets Pod. One word. It's at Finance Ghost and at Mohammed Nala. Or go and find us on LinkedIn. Until next week, same time, same place. Thanks and cheers. Ciao. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor 